We're going to be, um, since I didn't get to finish my message last week, I just, there's too much good stuff I couldn't leave. So I want to go back one more time to John chapter 14. This has been good. This was supposed to be one sermon. I drew it out to three long sermons. Wow, this is a good deal. Um, so let me read, let me read. We're going to look basically at just three verses, but let me pick it up a little before and after, and we'll read starting in verse 20, uh, 22. Judas, not Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name, said to Jesus, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? Jesus replied, All those who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and live with them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not do what I say, and remember, my words are not my own. This message is from the Father who sent me. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Counselor as my representative, and by the Counselor I mean the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I myself have told you. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of heart and mind. And the peace I give isn't like the peace the world gives. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you, I am going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really love me, you will be very happy for me, because now I can go to the Father who is greater than I am. I have told you these things before they happen, so that you will believe when they do happen. I don't have much more time to talk to you, because the Prince of this world approaches. He has no power over me, But I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. Uh, We talked last week um, about kind of a taste of heaven and how the resurrection promises for us this uh, amazing life in heaven. We talked a little bit about what we dream that will be like. Uh, But the significant thing for us is that what God promises is certainly true in its total fulfillment in heaven, but God wants us to enjoy a lot of those truths now, a lot of the fruit of what heaven will be. He wants us to enjoy now. Um, And we looked last week at two specific things, uh, living in God's love, that we receive God's love, and in turn we live in this relationship where we love him back, we respond to his love by loving him. And that's a lot of what heaven's going to be about. If you don't love God, you're really not going to like heaven very much. Because that's going to be a major theme there. And so it must be a major theme in our life now. And God wants us to learn to appreciate and get a taste for what that love relationship with the Father is like. Uh, secondly, he talks a lot in this passage and in chapter 15 as well about abiding in his presence, about being in the presence of God. Also a major theme in heaven. Heaven is basically God's house, which means he lives there. So if you're in heaven, you're going to be in God's presence. And uh, that, too, is something that we ought to look forward to, and I think most of us do, uh, experiencing the fullness of his presence and his glory and his beauty and his majesty uh, completely unveiled, completely, not you unveiled, but unveiled, right? Um, And to be in his presence. And again, that's something that the resurrection gives us today. Uh, We don't have to wait till we die and go to heaven to be in God's presence. 
uh, Jesus makes this amazing promise that, that the Father and, and the Son and the Spirit together have come and made their home with us through faith. And so we have that. Uh, and we talked a little bit last week about what that's like to experience God's presence. And I just want to clear up one thing before we move on to two, two other issues about experiencing God's presence. When I talk about experiencing God's presence, a lot of times we misunderstand what this experience is about. And uh, I thought about this this week, and I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know that I ever actually, like, you know, like, have days where I wake up and I, my feet don't actually touch the floor because I'm so enraptured in God's presence that I just feel light as a feather. You know, most of the mornings I get up and I run into things and I can't see and everything hurts, you know, because I'm getting older and my old injuries are kind of there. And, you know, I don't feel, like, real special. Uh, and when we talk about experiencing God's presence, that's not what we mean. Okay, it's not some kind of mystical experience that if I pray and fast and, and have some experience that somehow I'm going to experience some mystical thing where God's going to come in and light me up or I'm going to feel differently. Okay, that's not what we mean when we talk about it. I don't think it's what Scripture means when it, when it talks about experiencing God's presence. Well, what does it mean? Well, it's interesting. In John chapter 3, when, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about experiencing the Holy Spirit, what did he say? So you can't see the Spirit, you can't hear it, you can't taste it. The Holy Spirit is outside the realm of the scientific. That's why the world doesn't believe in him. Because they can't picture him, they can't draw him, they can't put him under a microscope. He's outside of that realm. But Jesus says because he's outside of that realm doesn't mean he exists or that you can't see visible evidence of him. We see the evidence how? Well, you just look out the window. Everybody look out the window. Okay, and what do you see? Well, you guys are looking. What's wrong with you, man? Kings can't follow directions. You look out this window. Oh, that window works. Okay, okay. Look out either one of these windows. What do you see? Trees. And what's happening to the trees? How do you know they're blowing? Because the leaves are moving. And there's one of two things happening. Either the, either the trees were so caught up in worship that they're still praising God. Hallelujah. Or there's a wind, Right? And, and John said, Jesus said in John chapter 3, you cannot see the wind, but you experience it by its effects, right? Well, the same thing's true in the experiencing God. We don't experience God by some cosmic inner experience where, you know, we, we, we just, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what I expect to feel, kind of like buzz or glow or something. Uh, so certainly God can sometimes give you those ecstatic experiences. But day by day, that's not what it means to experience him. We experience him like we experience the wind. Something we don't see, something we can't put our hands on. But its effects are visible around us and in us. Just like the wind blowing through the trees. And so, what are some of those effects? Well, in scripture, uh, three, there, there are many, and we're, we'll talk about them all, but three that come to mind are these. Faith, um, well, faith, hope, and love. Love, joy, and peace. Okay, those are three of the effects that we should expect to experience in our life if we are abiding in him, if we are in God's presence. Because, as we'll see in John chapter 14, those are key things that come along with God's presence. And it's what heaven is about, and it's what experiencing heaven on earth is about. It means experiencing those three things in our life. Love, peace, and joy. We talked a lot last week about love, so we're going to kind of move on 
uh, it's a subject we could continue on, but um, I'll let you study that on your own. But I want to talk this morning about the two other uh, effects, if you will, of God's presence abiding in our life. How do you know God is in you? Um, and, and let me say this also before we look at these two things, peace and joy, that we abide in God's presence first and foremost as an act of faith. Jesus has promised, and he has confirmed it by his death on the cross and the resurrection, that God has come and built his home with us. Do you believe that? See, that's the issue, is if you believe it or not. Not if you experience it, but if you believe it. Are you convinced that it's true that God, right now today, is with you living in the form of the Holy Spirit within us, and in terms of the Father and the Son who have made their home with us, that we are abiding in a constant living relationship with God. It's not something we experience. It's not something we wake up in the morning and may, may or may not feel. But it is something we stand on by faith, that God has made this promise. I trust that this promise is true. And I will live my life today with the conviction that God is in me and God is with me. As, as real and as present as he will be ever in heaven. Because the difference is in heaven we will have uh, eyes that see it much more clearly. But it doesn't make it more real. Okay, if I were to take my contacts out right now, uh, I couldn't see Matt. Okay, I could, if he's sitting on the front row, I still couldn't see him. Would it make him any less real? Well, of course not. He would be just as real whether I can see it or not. Same thing is true with God's presence in our life. It's something we must live with the conviction of faith that it's true. And if we do that, he promises these three evidences of his presence. Love, peace, and joy. So let's look at these. Jesus says, says this in verse 27. He says, I'm leaving you with a gift, my peace. I am giving you my peace. So therefore, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Um, what is peace? Well, certainly, uh, Jesus used the, I mean, in, 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 the, in the story that's told in John, it's written in, in Greek. But certainly, as Jesus told this, he would have told his disciples in Hebrew, and he would have used the word shalom. We all know the word shalom means peace, right? It's a common greeting that the Israelites used. Um, and it's, it's a common greeting because it was such a core value in Israel and in, in Judaism. The word really uh, is almost synonymous to what we, how we would use the word salvation. It was what they all longed and hoped for was God's peace. And what did they mean by that? Well, it was an idea that had to do with um, the well-being of heart and soul that comes from God. Uh, the idea of contentedness. Okay, a heart and a soul in a life that is calm and at peace and content in God. There is rest and safety, comfort, freedom from care, a state of trustfulness. Okay, that's peace. Okay, everybody take a big deep breath in. Breathe out. Okay, do you feel peace? You don't have to answer that question. Um, but peace is something that, that they valued as this inner calm. Okay? Uh, a very famous blessing in, uh, and that the Jews would give each other it comes from Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, where it says, 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to bless the people of Israel with this special blessing. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you peace. Right? Um, they understood, uh, clear back in the Old Testament, that this peace came as a direct result of being in God's presence. Okay, his face, those images of God's face shining on you, of him uh, showing you his favor, were pictures of God's presence. And Jesus really echoes that here in John chapter 14, that as we are in God's presence, what we should experience as a result of that is peace in our life. Um, and, and certainly when we think about heaven, when we think about the things about heaven that we, you know, not... Not the things we hope it's not, but the things that we hope it is. Okay, one of the things that we long for is a place of peace. That heaven will be a place where we will truly be at rest. Um, I talked last week about my love for hiking and backpacking and why I hope heaven is like that. And one of the things that I experienced in those times of being out in nature, if you will, is this incredible peace. And a lot of it's because I've gotten away from my old life you know, of work and busyness and responsibilities. And it's like when you're on vacation, you know, you, uh, you have no cell phone, no internet, you're away from all that stuff. And so people can't bother you with questions or problems. You know, there's no bills, there's no mail. And all that stuff's kind of gone. And so you experience this, oh man, life is good. You know, there's no problems, I am at peace. Well, certainly heaven will be a place like that where there will be this constant state and sense of well-being in God that life is, is good and there is peace, there is calm in our heart. Uh, the converse of that, I believe hell will be a place where there is no peace. Uh, one of the great things that makes hell a place of turmoil and unrest isn't going to be the stuff that's going on outside, but it will be the stuff that goes on within the heart and soul of each individual person. Okay, they will have hearts that are in turmoil, that are troubled, that are lacking that inner sense of calm and peace. Okay, that in itself will make it a wretched place to be. And it's what we long for in heaven. Um, well, what are, what are some of the enemies of peace? Well, Jesus says there's two things. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He says those are basically the two things that will rob you of peace. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, an agitated heart is simply this. If you could picture a, a bowl filled with water that's just perfectly calm and still. Okay, that would be a picture of peace, right? Nothing rip rippling it. Well, the word that Jesus used here is a word that literally means to agitate or stir something up. Okay? So it's like taking that bowl and putting it in a blender and pushing the button and it goes... Okay, and it stirs it up. Okay? And it makes your heart agitated. Uh, psychologists tell us that most people in the modern world live in a constant state of agitation. In fact, they've rated this on a scale of 1 to 10. And they say the closer you get to 10, the closer you are to exploding. Okay, like 1's not too bad, 9 is, you know, dangerous, 10 is, you just blow up, right? And uh, my picture is that most people are kind of like a blender. You know how blenders have the different settings, you know, chop, grind, you know, puree, puree, I don't even know what that means, but, you know, I go up the scale all the way up to, like, you know, nuclear holocaust, right? And my, my picture is that most people live like at one of those levels. Some people are like at two or three, you know, puree. Some are at chopping grade. Some are at like, you know, 
whipped to, you know, maximum. And we kind of live with this constant state of agitation in our heart, this state of being stirred up, agitated. And uh, you can kind of tell what level people are at by what sets them up. You know, people that are 8 or 9 or 10, like, you, you know, you sneeze wrong and boom, they blow up, right? Because they're just there, just waiting. You know, they're, just like, they're like this. And just one thing just puts them over the edge. And Jesus says, that's not peace. He says, don't let your heart be agitated. Don't let it be stirred up. The second picture he gives is he says, uh, do not fear. The other thing that robs us of, of peace is fear. Fear ultimately of, of judgment and God's wrath. Uh, we experience that more real in everyday life by the fear of people around us. It's one of the reasons that anger is such a great and powerful weapon. I don't suggest you use it, but it gets used a lot. And one of the reasons it's effective is because we fear people's anger. It doesn't mean it's a little tiny person or a really big person. There's something about that anger that we, we naturally respond in fear to. Uh, the fear of, of um, rejection, the fear of abandonment, the fear of loneliness, the fear of failure, uh, the fear of the things that will rob us of peace. Those things can grip our heart, and they will do that. They will rob us of peace and calm. Now, Jesus says, I don't give peace like the world gives. Well, how does the world give peace? Well, first of all, most of what the world gives in terms of peace comes from the outside and tries to work its way into our life. Um, the world provides peace based on circumstances. All right? If you want peace in the world, you go to Phuket and sit on the beach, right? And I'll admit, that's, there's something about that that's very peaceful. Or you go to a spa and get, you know, a back rub and smell all kinds of flowery, nifty stuff and, and there's quiet music playing. And oh, granted, in those circumstances, I can feel quite peaceful. Okay, quite calm, right? And that is oftentimes the world's solution to this problem, to create around yourself an environment, a bubble, where there is calm. The problem is, life doesn't work that way. And it's great for a couple hours getting a, you know, a massage, or it's great for a few days at the beach, or it's great for small capsules of time. But that's not the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about. He's talking a piece, about a peace that abides with us day in and day out. In fact, the, the startling thing of this passage is that Jesus is talking to his disciples just hours away from the cross. In fact, he started off this passage saying, you know, I know that you guys don't know what's going on and you're scared, but don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. And see, Jesus is explaining and talking about a peace that is possible in the worst kind of circumstances. When your life is absolutely falling apart, when your life falls apart and everything starts to go wrong and nothing's working, what happens to the calm state of your heart? You know, you're the blender that goes from like five to nine. When those that's what I am. You know, the circumstances go bad. You get phone calls you don't want. People tell you things you don't want to hear. Man, it just escalates that, you know, to get closer and closer to explosion. So that's because our... Our peace is dependent on circumstances. That's the peace the world gives. When that doesn't work, the world has other solutions. When we can't control our circumstances and that internal turmoil comes to a certain point, the world has great solutions. You just drug it, right? You drink enough, you, you take drugs, 
you watch enough television, you watch movies, you read romance novels, you, uh, you, you, know, you cons- waste your life on the Internet, you get involved in pornography or sex, or whatever can distract you from the gnawing turmoil in your heart. That's the world solution. And that's why we live in a culture and a society and a world that's consumed with entertainment, that's consumed with uh, numbing everything that it feels. Now, I have no problem with, with drinking alcohol. I don't do it personally because I don't like the taste of it. But um, I don't have a problem with people who do. Uh, I'll pray for you. No, just kidding. Um, but the truth is, too many people in the world drink to hide the, the pain the turmoil of their heart, to numb what they feel inside. And it works until it wears off. And then that turmoil is still back there churning and bubbling and eating and gnawing. And Jesus says, I give you peace not like the world gives. I give you a peace that comes deep in your heart and gives you calm and peace regardless of circumstances. Jesus was going to the cross He was at the last hour, last moments with his disciples. Was he at peace? Absolutely, at perfect peace. Does it mean he wanted everything? No, he went to the garden and he prayed, Father, please take this from me. It says he was in agony. But in the midst of that agony, there was this calm that uh, God was in control. And we'll talk more about God's, Jesus' peace in a moment. Um... Jesus gives a peace that's much different. A calm heart in a chaotic world. Uh, And it's important that he says, you know, this is my gift to you. It's something I give you. We cannot generate or produce this kind of peace in our life on our own. And you know, there's all kinds of, uh, especially if you get into Eastern mysticism, there's all kinds of techniques and meditation. And of course, that's the whole thing with monks is they meditate themselves into a place of tranquility and nothingness. It doesn't work. Okay, I can guarantee you it doesn't work. It is an illusion. It is not real peace. Jesus alone can give real peace. And the reason for that is that one of the reasons we are not at peace within ourselves is that every human being knows they have violated God's purpose and will. They know deep down inside that they have offended the God who created them. They know it instinctively and inherently. They may not admit it, They may run and hide from it, but deep inside they know they are not at peace with God. And so they fill their life with other things to hide that gnawing sense that things are not right with God. And of course that's why Jesus went to the cross to bring peace between us and God. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says this, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself, He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So Christ alone uh, can bring peace by restoring that broken relationship with the Father. And that's why it's so important that we have a life that's clean and pure where our sins have been confessed, where we have put out on the table everything that we know we've done against God and said, God, we ask you to cleanse it, to heal it, to reconcile that brokenness. And not only does God, Jesus reconcile with, with um, God, but he reconciles with man as well. Um, he says in 
Ephesians 2, he says this, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Greeks into one people in his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. So Jesus gives us peace, and that peace extends into every area of our life. And it should be one of the fruits, it is one of the fruits of that abiding relationship with Christ. So the more we walk by faith in his presence, the more we live and dwell in his love, there should be this growing sense of inner calm and peace in your life. That doesn't come all at once. Uh, Jesus says that there's a fight to be had here. He says, I give you this gift of peace. It's yours. It's free to abide and dwell in your heart. But then he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. The reality is, I give far too much permission to this world to agitate me. Okay? I give far too much permission to people around me to bug me, to let them get under my skin. Because I'm not walking in God's peace, I'm living in my own man-made world where my peace is dependent on circumstances, on people behaving the way I want them to behave, the way I need them to behave so that I can have peace. Which usually doesn't mean peace for them. right? That's kind of how it works. If I'm demanding peace from them, I'm probably causing them turmoil. right? Only God can do that. And so he says, fight back. Don't let the things in this world agitate you. Don't let that fear creep in. By faith, stand up to those things and claim and stand on God's promise that he brings peace into our life. Uh, Do that abiding walk with Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing he talks about that will be a mark of this abiding life. Second thing, actually it's the third thing, love, then peace. Third thing, joy. Um... He continues on in verse uh, 28. Remember what I told you. I am going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really loved me, you would be very happy for me. Literally, he says, you would rejoice. Because now I can go to the Father who is greater than I am. Um, Jesus says, you know, if you guys really loved me at all, Instead of being sad and depressed and troubled and fearful that I'm going to leave this world, going to depart in death and then come back to you again, instead of being depressed, you ought to be filled with joy. You should be rejoicing. You should be happy about this. Well, these are some of the more perplexing words that Jesus gives. And when we look at these at first glance, it's like, man, Jesus, you know, I'm glad the world was a happy place for you. But get real here. I mean, these guys are about to lose their master, their Lord, the one they have pinned all of their hopes on. Uh, they have followed you for three years. They've given up everything. They've sold, given up homes and land and their jobs and their fishing nets to follow you, and now you're ditching them. And in them are all kinds of fears of abandonment and loneliness and desertion, and their dreams are crashing down around them. And you want them to be happy? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with this picture? Well, 
first of all, let's look at a couple of things. What does Jesus mean when he talks about joy? Okay, the word that's used there again, as I said, is the word rejoicing. The word rejoice and joy come from the same Greek word. The word joy is the noun, and rejoice is the verb. So if you have a thing that is joy, that's the thing, it's a noun, you have joy. But if you do joy and it becomes a verb, you rejoice. Okay, and I don't quite understand that, and, and I don't actually use the word that way, but in the Greek, that's how you would use it. If I have joy, have joy. if I do it, it's rejoice. Uh, maybe another way to look at this would be to use the word enjoy, okay, instead of rejoice, because really, I don't use rejoice outside of my religious vocabulary. You know, I don't go to Lotus and, and go, oh, rejoice, it's on sale today. <laughs> Hallelujah. Okay, it's become a very religious word. And we talk about rejoicing in God, but we really have no idea what it means, okay? Other than, like, I don't know, it's like go bouncy or something. Okay? But I know what the word enjoy means. Okay? I enjoy an apple pie with ice cream and Colby cheese. Okay? It's got to have the cheese. It just is not true enjoyment. Okay? My, my, my wife thinks I'm weird, but I, it's got to have the Colby cheese. Right? I, there are things I enjoy, um, and I know what that word means. So let's, let's think about it in terms of that word. Okay? Jesus says, if you really loved me, you would enjoy what is about to happen to me. Okay, that sounds even worse. <laughs> God seems even more twisted and sick. I'm about to die, and you're telling me to enjoy this? Okay, Jesus, you're, you're just wrong here. What is he talking about? Well, this idea of, of joy or enjoying something uh, is really the idea of, similar to peace, it's having within us, deep in our heart, Wow. Where's the peace? Where's the peace, man? Um, it, it is really being happy in the deepest sense of the word, not the cheesy sense. Okay, there's a cheesy kind of happy. But this kind of joy is having deep-seated delight or happiness or joy, the word, in our life, in our hearts. Um, it, is, it is ultimately what we long for in heaven. Okay, of all the things that we've talked about, probably the thing that we singly most think about when we, want, when we picture heaven is we want it to be a place where we experience joy. You know, peace is good, we like that. Love is great, we, we know we need that. But probably all of us long most for this sense of joy. Okay? Um, and heaven will be that. It will be a place of banquets, it will be a place of celebration. It will be a place where we will be ultimately happy. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount starts it off by saying, Happy are you. And he sells the whole Sermon on the Mount with this, this pursuit that every human being is after, our happiness. Okay, uh, if you're an American, you know, the, every right of every American is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, the rest of you in the world, you'll just have to catch up with that one. Um, but it's a right in America. There you go. So we have to be very happy people. Wow, we kind of messed that one up. Um, Jesus says that part of our life ought to be the, the determined pursuit of happiness, even in situations like Jesus here where he's about to go to the cross. Um, well, what is it that makes us happy? 
what is it that the world is pursuing and how are they pursuing this happiness? Well, the world has tons of ideas and it's a lot of the same ideas that have to do with peace. But most of it requires large amounts of money, really nice houses, cool cars, material things, you know, perfect, flawless relationships. Like, you know, all of you have that in your marriage, okay? As Christians, we have perfect, flawless marriages, right? So we're such happy people. Amen? Okay, we're kind of thinking about that one. Um, and yet when you watch movies, you watch television, when you watch, read books, the world says, this is possible. You can have these wonderful romantic relationships where you fall in love and the whole world melts away and it's only the two of you. And every moment and breath is sweet and wonderful and you are happy and you can be like that forever. That's how the fairy tales end, right? And they were that way forever and ever. Okay? Because that's what the world wants. That's what we long for. That's what we ultimately hope is true in heaven. That we will have this abiding, deep happiness. Um, And Jesus says that this is possible. Not necessarily the way we think it is. But it is possible, and he, he believes that it's possible for the disciples to have this kind of joy, even facing the cross. Even on this dark hour, when they recognize Jesus is about to depart. Um, I really believe this is, for us is an important perspective when we look at evangelism. The reality is I believe every lost person in the world wants to be happy. And it's, it's where we need to start with evangelism. You know, for many, many years, mo- you know, most of, the, uh, most of the models for evangelism that I know of start with our sin. You know, you start with evangelism like, you know, I'm a Christian, you're going to hell, let me tell you why. Because you're a sinner and you deserve it. Okay, would you like to receive Jesus now? Oh, sign me up, you know. Uh, just what I wanted to know. Right? It doesn't really work real well. And it's, granted, I've I led people to Christ that way because, I don't know, I scared them bad enough or something. But that's not where people start. And interestingly, it's not really where God starts. I believe God starts with our broken condition that has robbed us of his joy. That has robbed us of the pursuit of joy and happiness that he longs for us to have. And that, that joy and happiness is broken because of sin. And it's restored because of Christ. We've got to take it beyond just this sin thing. Um, The reality is that people have bought this huge lie of Satan that what the world offers can give them joy. And we need to help them see that it's a lie. It's a fake. It's shallow and meaningless. And that true and lasting joy can be found only in Christ. You know, what, God, what, what the world has offered them is a lot like the Rolex you buy at Maasai. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> the 100 baht Rolex looks cool, shiny, cool stuff, lasts till you get right out of town. And then, by the time you get to Ching Rai, if you, if, you get, if you make it to Ching Rai, you've got a good one. Okay? <laughs> Hands start falling off, you know, things start coming apart, and you know, okay, this is really stupid. And of course, you know, um, and that's what the world offers. This joy that is a facade. It's a lie. 
But the world is still searching. People are looking for the thing in their life that will make them happy, that will give them joy. And Jesus says it's possible, it's there, and it is available even in the darkest moments like this. Um, a, A joy that is in fact greater than our deepest sorrows. He says to these guys, if you loved me, in the moment of my going to the cross and leaving you, you would enjoy this experience. How is that possible? Well, Jesus gives the reason. And he says, you would enjoy it because, because I am going to the Father who is greater than me. I am going to the Father who is greater than me. What does he mean by that? Well, a lot of heretics have misquoted the scripture to say that Jesus wasn't really God. And, uh, and this proves it because God was greater than Jesus, therefore Jesus must have been something less than God. Uh, if you read through the book of John alone, not to mention the rest of Scripture, you know that that is not a possible interpretation. Jesus has gone to great lengths throughout this gospel to demonstrate that he is in every way equal to God. Uh, the, the Gospel of John starts out with this amazing picture of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, so whatever he's talking about here, Jesus is not talking about somehow being less than God or being somehow created by God. Um, But he says this. He says, I'm going to the Father who is greater than me. Um, What does he mean by that? Without going into all the theological debates and arguments, let me just give you my short answer. I'll let you wrestle with it some more if you want. I believe what Jesus is really saying here is this. He's saying, my Father is superior in that He is more worthy of worship than I am. I came out from the Father. My life has proceeded eternally, not as a created being, but as one who eternally has my life proceeding from the Father. And I have come to earth for the purpose to give glory back to the Father in everything. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, everywhere he went, everything he did, he said, I do this so that the Father would be glorified. He went to the cross so that it would bring glory to the Father. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying is simply this. He says, I am fully equal in existence and being to God himself. But as theologians say, I am subordinate to him in relationship. And my subordinate position in relationship means that it's my call in life not to bring glory to myself, even though I'm God and worthy of worship, but ultimately all the worship I receive I give to the Father. And so my life is all about giving honor and glory to the Father. And so here's, the, here's what this means. Um, Jesus is acknowledging this greatness and supremacy of, of his Father. That doesn't diminish his own greatness or supremacy. But he is saying, look, my Father is ultimately supreme and great. And this is really what is at the heart of all praise and worship. Okay, praise and worship is simply ad- admiring something greater than you. Um, and we, we, see this, we see this well in sports, okay? For us guys who are a little slow and all this stuff, sports is a great model for us because it helps us understand life, okay? And it's a great picture of what worship is. Okay, uh, if, you, if you have a team or a sport or an athlete, I want you to picture what you think is the greatest example of it. You know, the greatest all-star, the greatest player. We, we honor those people, Why? Well, because they have taken the game to a whole other level. 
Okay? And we recognize that they do it a thousand times greater than we do. All right? And we admire their ability and their skill and their mastery of the game. And we are impressed because we know we could not reach those levels. And we look at our own life and we try to play the sport like they do it and, you know, it just doesn't work. And we are even more impressed at their ability. And we, in a sense, worship. We give them honor. Like, wow, did you see how they hit that ball or kick that ball or whatever? How they perform. We can do the same thing in, in the fields of music or art. Um, we recognize their extraordinary gift above us, that they do it way, way better than we could. Okay? Now, if it's somebody who does it on our level, do we honor that? No, we dishonor them. It's like, that's the best, that's all you got? Ha! <laughs> I'll show you. They don't honor that. Now, if we're trying to encourage them, we may say some, we may not laugh at them, actually. We may try to say some encouraging things like, oh, that's good. Yeah, wait. Right? Okay, but we don't worship it. We don't honor it. Um, I don't know if you've this morning. Is Mike Conserva here? Oh, good. I'm going to talk about him. He's not here. Um, you know, I, he speaks Thai so well. It just ticks me off, really. He speaks Thai so well. And we had this training seminar a while back. Man, he comes up with these amazing theological words in Thai. It's like, man, how do you do that? And I, I was very impressed with him when he could do that because I can't do that. I'm like here. He's way up there, right? Well, that's what worship is. It's, it's recognizing something greater than you, something more worthy of praise. And Jesus says, I go to my Father who's greater than me. I, I live my life to honor him. Okay, to exalt him. And what it means is simply this, that Jesus lived his life in worship to God, right? Everything he did was to give glory and honor to the Father. And this is what he says to his disciples. He says, you should enjoy this event. You should delight in it because, not because it's suffering, not because it will leave you lonely and feeling abandoned, but you should enjoy this because it brings glory to my Father. It is the chief and supreme event in all of history that glorifies the Father. And so in that, if you loved me, if you understood what was going on, you should enjoy what is happening now and rejoice in it because it will ultimately bring glory to the Father. And you see, that is what is at the heart of all worship. Worship is not simply giving glory to God. It is that. But it's giving glory to God and enjoying it. Okay? And those two things have to go together. Giving glory to God and enjoying Him. Not just enjoying the process, but actually enjoying Him who is worthy of worship. You know, we, we can say, and it is possible actually, to love people we don't like. Okay, there are people we're commanded to love everybody. I don't, I don't like everybody. Okay? I like all of you, so don't worry. I like all of you. Because uh, you're great. Honestly, you guys are amazing people, and I do uh, enjoy you a great deal. But there are people, they go to the other churches, that I don't like. <laughs> and, and it is possible for us to love those that we don't like. 
Sometimes, you know, our kids can just drive us crazy, and there are days when maybe you don't like your kids so much because they've just pushed your buttons one too many times, and uh, your gracious gift of love is not to kill them. Okay, you are loving them by not physically harming them. They don't understand that, but, you know, it's, it's the deepest love you can give. Right? Um, and it's possible to do that. It is not possible, however, to worship somebody that you don't like. And it's also not the highest degree or form of love. Imagine if you're in your marriage relationship, if you said, you know, honey, I really don't like you, and I'm only loving you because God makes me. Okay, uh, and the reality is sometimes we do feel that way, honestly. But if you walk in that every day, every day, every day, it's going to be really hard to stay married. Okay, it's going to be really hard to have a healthy relationship. And that's why we want to encourage you to go to the Enrich Seminar, a little, little plug. Okay. <laughs> You know, we, we, there has to become a, a point in our marriage where we actually enjoy each other. Because that raises what love is to a new level and plane. And if that's true with love, it's even more so true in worship. You can't really worship something you don't enjoy. Not really. You can go through the motions. You can act it. But worship in its deepest and truest form requires that you enjoy what it is you are admiring. Um, The only way you can have that kind of joy in great sorrow is if you really so enjoy and love the one you are worshiping. Jesus said, if you loved me, if you really had that kind of deep love relationship with me and with the Father, where the Father is so great in your life, that you long for him so much and you enjoy him so much that you are thrilled at every step of his unfolding plan. <clears throat> you would enjoy this. You would rejoice in this. <clears throat> there would be for you a level <clears throat> uh, in my throat. a level of joy that goes beyond the 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 depth of the sorrow. Um is that kind of thing possible? Well, Acts 5.41 says this. Uh, the apostles that got arrested, got harassed, and threatened with death by the Pharisees, <coughs> religious rulers, and the, it says this, after they were released, the apostles left the high council rejoicing. There's that word again. Enjoying that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace. Why? For the name of Jesus. They weren't happy about getting arrested. But they rejoiced. They enjoyed that their lives were able to give glory even through suffering. Okay? We ought to be finding our greatest and deepest joy and delight in God. And the reality is that for many years of my own life, and I really fear that for many of us here, your Christian life is not something you really enjoy. In fact, it's probably something you were told that to enjoy it would somehow be wrong or be a sin. Like if you enjoy something too much, it must be evil, right? And like any pleasure, any delight, any joy in anything must make it bad. And therefore, if you enjoy Christianity at all, there must be something wrong with it. So you need to switch churches and go to a really boring church where they don't have fun, right? And you need to really wear long faces and wish you could drink but never can, okay? Uh, That's like what Christianity is for a lot of people, 
Um, and maybe, maybe a lot of them really need to go out and just drink, you know? Maybe they just would be better off. I don't know. Um, God is greater than everything. Is that true? Jesus said, God is even greater than me. He is even more worthy of worship than I am. Is that true? Is the God we worship so great that he is above everything? If it is true and we know that, it should be the natural response of our heart to worship him. He is greater than people, powers, kings, rulers, and heavenly beings. He is greater than times and seasons and centuries and even generations of generations. He is greater than mountains or planets or solar systems or universes. He is greater than every problem you will ever have. He is greater than your life. He is greater than the lives of all of us put together. He is great above everything. He's greater than your favorite sports team. Unbelievable. You know, he's greater than all these things because he made it all and it all exists for him. His plan of salvation is the ultimate display of greatness where he conquered sin and death through one person on one cross who died 2,000 years ago to set us free from sin and death. Okay, God in every way is great. And we really can't put it into words. We can't really describe the extent of his overwhelming greatness. But it ought to impress us. And it ought to strike us so that when we see it, we experience joy. We experience delight. Because that's naturally what happens when we encounter great things. The problem is we don't encounter his greatness enough. We encounter it as a fact in our head. We don't really encounter it in our life. It's something we know as an opinion. It's not something we experience in the sense that it, it staggers us because we've been in the presence of the great God of the universe. Um, let, me, uh, let me close with this. I really believe that that this joy that Jesus talks about ought to be one of the highest goals and priorities of our life. Uh, if not, your Christianity will be something that ultimately chokes you out and is boring and dead. Uh, worship will be something that you enjoy if you like the music. It will not be something you do as a, an overwhelming response that you can't help. Um, for too many people, coming to church and worship is something we do uh, either to go through the motions or try, try to work up in ourselves some experience so we feel like we encountered God. But if God is the ultimate joy of our life, it should be a natural response that we can't help but doing. Um, <clears throat> when, when I was a kid, well, I'm kind of still this way actually, especially when I was a kid, uh, I had a very difficult time enjoying anything. I don't know what was messed up in my childhood that I, I couldn't enjoy anything. But just to give you a glimpse of how this worked in my life, at, uh, I loved candy. And uh, I, every chance I could get, you know, I, 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 would, I loved candy. And I, I still just have this amazing sweet tooth. I live on sugar. 
Um, I figure, you know, your body breaks everything down into sugar anyway. Why not just start there? It just makes it so much more efficient. That's my theory. Um, so when I was a kid, you know, you get Christmas, uh, at Christmas you'd get candy. At Halloween you'd go out and get bags full of candy. And I would take all that candy home. You know what I would do with it? I would store it away and I would never eat any of it. I would save it all, every bit of it. I would save it to enjoy later. But you know what? Later never came. And uh, I don't know how many drawers full of candy my mom ended up throwing away because I never ate it. Crazy. I love this stuff. I mean, I would, I would drool for this stuff. I would never eat it. What's, what's wrong with a person like that? Um, I don't know. But you know, that's the way I was. And I couldn't give myself permission to enjoy it now. And I had the sense that, that that's something I have to hold off for later. I think a lot of people live their Christian life exactly that way. They think that heaven is something that we are to enjoy in the future and to taste it or enjoy it now will somehow rob it of its glory. And God says, no, you are missing the point. You must learn, you must learn to enjoy me now because it is the wellspring of your life. Okay? It's not something you put off. That's pride. Ultimately, it's pride. It's saying, God, I don't need this. I'm above it. Maybe someday it will be a luxury I'll enjoy, but I don't need it now. Believe me, you need it. You need a life, and God wants to give you a life of joy where you enjoy him every moment. Even as your Lord is going to the cross, even in the midst of the crosses of your own life, that there can be a joy in that because you know that even in your worst suffering, it is giving glory to the Father, and it's honoring him. And your worst pain, if it means death, is something you can enjoy because it gives glory to the Father and you enjoy that. Uh, Psalm 68 puts it this way. First six verses say this. Um, He starts off by talking about the wicked. He says, Arise, O God, and scatter your enemies. Let those who hate God run for their lives. Drive them off like smoke blown away by the wind. Melt them like wax in a fire. And then he concludes with this amazing line, let the wicked perish in the presence of God. Okay, so those who are wicked, when they come before God's presence, let them perish, he says. But, he says, let the godly rejoice. There's that word again. Let them be glad in God's presence. Let them be filled with joy. Sing praises to God and to his name. Sing loud praises to him who rides the clouds. Great image, this awesome God who rides the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. One of the great signs of a life and a person who is living and abiding in God, who by faith is is living with this conviction, is that your life should be filled with joy. And you should, the psalmist says, every moment be enjoying him. Be delighting in his presence. Um, he goes on, he says, Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is the God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the captives free and he gives them joy. He gives them joy. Amazing words. God wants that for you and I. 
And a lot of times we think this is how it works. We read John 14, talks a lot about loving and obeying, about all this stuff we're supposed to do, loving each other. And we get this picture that, okay, God, if I do all these things, read my Bible, go to church, give lots of money, make people happy, try to be a good Christian, then you will give me joy. And usually what we mean by that is then you'll give me the things I want that I think will make me happy. Success, a better job, more money, you know, a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a wife, a husband, another wife, a different husband, um, whatever. Whatever those things are that you think will bring happiness into your life. That's not what God's talking about here. He says, the joy I am talking about is not something I give you if you do these things. He said, the joy I'm talking about is joy in me that you experience as you do these things. As you walk in obedience, you find out what it means to enjoy me. Because it's in me. It is in loving me. It is in being in a right relationship with this great God of the universe. And enjoying him. And enjoying serving him. Because it is such a great honor and privilege. Uh, God invites us to that. And Jesus says that that is, uh, I believe, one of the great hallmarks of a life of a person who is abiding in Christ, who is abiding in his love, and who, in whom the God of the universe is dwelling day by day. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, just thank you so much that you are a God who, who created joy. Uh, that, that joy and delight and the thrill of worship are all things that you experienced in the Trinity from long before the world was created. And we see a glimpse of that Trinity relationship of joy and delight and love as Jesus poured out his heart before the disciples and said, I'm going to the cross to prove to the world, to demonstrate to the world how much I love the Father, how much joy I possess in my relationship with the Father to whom I am subordinate and to whom I give all glory in my life. Lord Jesus, please, I pray by your Spirit, uh, rearrange our thinking and our understanding of what the Christian life is about so that we would, we would clearly grasp these principles. Uh, Father, I confess that in my own life, too much of my Christian experience has been dismal and depressing and troubled and fearful. And those are not things you have given to me. They are things I have allowed to creep into my life which has robbed me of the joy and delight and peace you intend for your children. So, Father, we pray that you would teach us about this. Lord, help us to reflect and to meditate, to hunger for a relationship with you that we delight in, that we long for, that we have wet our appetites for, and we cannot get enough of you because you are so wonderful and so worthy of our pursuing that we just cannot get enough. Lord God, I pray that by your Spirit you would fall upon us and grant that kind of hunger in our heart that we would truly long for you. And in the pursuit of you, in the filling of that hunger, uh, 
we would come to know the joy and the love and peace that comes in being in your presence. A peace that this world cannot comprehend and a joy that it cannot possess. Lord, we, we, we cry out for this in Christ's name. Amen.